Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Attitudes toward birth control pills have changed a lot over time. When it was first introduced in the 1950s, the pill was heralded as both liberating and revolutionary for women. However, in the 1970s, we started to see some backlash emerge. The potential health risks of the pill started to come into focus. Also, some feminists started asking the question of why birth control should be solely women's responsibility. These questions continue to be asked today. And despite the fact that more and more women began using the pill, even as these controversies started to brew, what we're seeing in recent years is a growing number of women of reproductive age walking away from the pill. This is especially true for millennial and Gen Z women. So let's talk about why the birth control pill is falling out of favor among many young women. What are the reasons for this? Which contraceptives are growing in popularity instead? Where are we with progress on a male version of the birth control pill? And how is the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade likely to impact all of this? I am joined once again by Dr. Sarah Hill, an award-winning research psychologist and professor whose work is at the intersection of evolutionary biology, social psychology, and neuroscience. She is author of the fantastic book, Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Attitudes toward sex have changed a lot over time, and that includes people's attitudes toward birth control pills. When they first arrived on the market, they were very controversial, which is an understatement. In fact, they were actually illegal, and the companies making them had to do some clever marketing in order to get them into women's hands. And specifically, they were originally advertised as a treatment for menstrual disorders, and they came with this big warning label that pregnancy prevention was a potential side effect because you couldn't sell contraceptives, marketed as contraceptives, at a time when that was against the law. Now, today, the pill isn't quite so controversial. Certainly, there still is some controversy certainly more so than others in some parts of the country, but most American adults believe that it's morally acceptable to use birth control. 
However, we seem to be on the cusp of another shift in attitudes. So, for example, in a recent survey of 2,000 young women in the United States, 70% of those who were using the pill said they had either stopped taking it or they were thinking about going off of it in the last three years. So, why is that? What are some of the reasons why millennials and Gen Z women seem to be walking away from the pill? That's such a great question. And, you know, I think really what it is, is that these younger generations of women have become a lot more skeptical about what they're putting in their body. And rightfully so. You know, I think that for my generation and certainly my mom's generation and, you know, above that, we grew up in, you know, pharmacopoeia. You know, it was that time when like doctors were really like prescribing things and we would just assume that whatever we were being given was something that was absolutely necessary for our bodies. And, you know, people's attitudes toward pharmacological interventions have changed dramatically and people have become very wary of drugs that are being prescribed just simply because drugs have become such a cash cow for the pharmaceutical company. And I think that people, it makes them a little cautious about like, well, why are you telling me to take this? And do I really need this in my body? Because I think that people are a little exhausted by constantly being given a medical solution to all of their problems instead of actually being treated, just being handed some medication. And so I think that younger women are more cautious than my generation of women is. And with good reason. It's like even now, you know, like the same generation of women, they're the same ones who told the tampon companies, like, can you please tell us what's in this cotton that we're jamming up our vaginas? You know, it's like, what chemicals are in here? Like, we deserve to know that. And now they have to report that. So I think it's a really positive step seeing that people are really trying to take control of their health, take their health into their own hands and being cautious about what they're being offered and trying to seek more information. Right. And I agree with you that it's a positive step in some ways to the extent that people are actually being more informed consumers. But by the same token, there are lots of people who think that they know better than what the science and research and data say. And then sometimes they get skeptical of medical interventions like vaccines that actually can really help in terms of protecting our health. So, you know, it kind of cuts both ways with this focus on wanting more organic and all natural remedies. And yeah, there can be benefits in getting away from some of the very synthetic drugs and medications and other things like that. But sometimes that's the solution. No, absolutely. It's it's like everything, right? It, it does cut both ways because with a, a healthy grain of skepticism about like, all right, well, just tell me what you want me to put in my body so I can look it up. Then there's also paranoia about things that essentially put the public health at risk. And, and that's the other side of that coin or can be the other side of that coin. Yep. So there are a lot of reasons why younger women seem to increasingly be walking away from the pill. And part of it might be that broader trend toward kind of wanting organic or all natural remedies. Part of it might also just be wanting convenience. You know, with a birth control pill, you do have to take it every single day. And while one pill a day might not sound like a big burden to some people, for others it is, especially if there are more convenient methods that you only have to use every couple of months or you can get an IUD and use that for years, right? So part of it is convenience. And then there's also the issue of side effects. You know, if it's not working for you and your body, you might want to be switching to a different method. But I also wonder to what extent misinformation about the pill is contributing to this too. So there are a lot of myths out there about how the 
the pill affects users, such as this idea that your body needs to take a break from it every now and then, or that the pill can cause infertility or pregnancy problems down the road. So what are some common myths you hear about the pill that you think need to be corrected so that people can be informed consumers about it? Right. So I think one of the big ones is a pregnancy question. Will the pill decrease fertility? And the answer to that is no. There's There's been no published research that finds a link with pill use and uh, long-term problems with fertility. And I say long-term problems with fertility because there is research that shows that it takes women who were never users of hormonal birth control, that they generally, I forget exactly what the timeline is, but it's essentially they might get pregnant an average of two weeks sooner for example, than a former user, but it's not something that's significant. It's not like a big difference. And so the reason that this myth perpetuates is the fact that a lot of women who are on hormonal birth control are preventing pregnancy for a really long time because they're doing other things like getting careers and doing these other things. And what this does is it tends to push back the age of childbearing you know, later and later and later, right? Because one of the great things that the birth control pill has done is allow us to not have any children until we're 29 or 30. But the thing that I think that women sometimes are actively in denial about is the fact that our reproductive curve, right, is very much alive and well. And our fertility begins to decline um, pretty dramatically after 30, certainly very dramatically after 35. And the probability of becoming pregnant are, is much lower. You know, and I think that sometimes we see people who are, you know, these celebrities who get pregnant when they're like 45 or 50, even with, with in vitro fertilization and this sort of thing. And then we believe that, oh, well, it's going to be no big deal and it'll be easy for us to get pregnant when we're 35. When I don't think that most women are taught, like, hey, just so you know, this is like what your fertility actually looks like and shown a, a graph. And it's, you know, that's a very real biological fact that unfortunately women are sort of stuck with. And this is probably the thing I think that drives that myth is that you will have women who are on the pill for a long time, have difficulty getting pregnant, but has a whole lot less to do with the fact they were on the pill per se, but rather the fact that they restricted their fertility for a long time and waited to have children, you know, until later in life, which makes it more difficult. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it has me thinking about how, to what extent maybe the introduction of the birth control pill sort of led to a reordering of society in a lot of ways where that then afforded us the ability to delay pregnancy and childbearing and all of these kinds of things to when it would be more convenient so you could pursue your education, your career, all of these other things. But that comes with this side effect of, well, if you're waiting till later in life to have children, there is that greater risk of things potentially going wrong with the pregnancy or not being able to get pregnant, not because of the pill, but just because of the nature of human biology. Now, as an alternative to the pill and other hormonal contraceptives, we've seen a rise in fertility tracking apps among young women. And basically, these apps are designed to help clue you in on when the odds of pregnancy are higher versus lower. So it's basically like a high-tech version of what used to be known as the calendar method or the rhythm method, but also sometimes combined with some fertility awareness methods like basal body temperature and so forth. So how effective are methods like this at preventing pregnancy? And what do you think people should know when it comes to using apps like this as their primary form of contraception. Right. And I'm a like I'm a big advocate of tracking your cycle as a woman. I just think that it gives you so much insight into who you are and how you function. 
And so using these different types of um, fertility tracking apps, especially ones that have a component where they measure basal body temperature. I, and in fact, I use natural cycles and I have it synced because they have it synced with your aura ring. And so it measures your temperature for you at night. And then it sort of tells you what's going on and whether you ovulated and you know what phase of the cycle you're in. And in terms of like using that as a birth control, it can be highly effective if you use it quote unquote correctly, especially if you're using basal body temperature or using the fertility awareness method, which also includes tracking your cervical mucus. This can be a really effective way of knowing when your fertile window is. And then you can use a barrier method or just simply abstain during the periods when you are fertile. So does this work? Yeah, it works. When you are using it correctly, it can be very effective. Would I recommend this to anybody for whom the cost of an unintended pregnancy would be really high? No, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. And especially now that we're living in this sort of dystopian, you know, post Roe v. Wade era when um, women are now going to have limited access to safe abortions, this isn't probably what I would recommend to somebody, especially if they're not really on the ball. You know, if you're somebody who's on the ball, and you can trust yourself to make good decisions about whether to use protection or not based on whether or not you're in the fertile window, which not all women are. Um, so I'm one of those women. I'll implicate myself because during the fertile window, of course, this when estrogen is high and women want sex. And I can't tell you the number of times I was like just overly risky with my sexual behavior. So I'm like, I'm not going to get pregnant. And it's like, of course, of course I can get pregnant. But it's like you tell yourself a story because you want to have sex. Um, and so that's, you know, that's like one form of, and also there's, um, your temperature gets wonky because you have a fever or you were drinking alcohol. There's a lot of things that can make our body temperature fluctuate. So it's not as perfect as, as a person might want it to be. So I do think that these can be really great. Um, and especially for couples who are in a couple, right? So for women who are part of a relationship where if there was a pregnancy that occurred that was unexpected, that it wouldn't be the end of the world. But I don't know that I, I like it for people for whom that isn't the case. Yeah. I have a whole section in my textbook on the different contraceptive methods and what their effectiveness rates are. And for these fertility awareness methods, if people are using them perfectly, they're about 95% effective. But we know that most people don't have perfect use. And that's also true with condoms and other things. So if you look at the typical use effectiveness rate, which is you know what actually happens in reality, because there's human error and these other things, it's about 75, 76% effective. And the way to interpret that statistic is that over the course of a year, if 100 women are using this as their primary form of birth control, about 25 of them are going to get pregnant, right? So when you think about it through that lens, it's not that effective with typical use. But I should also point out that condoms, you know, with perfect use, they're 98% effective, but with typical use, only about 80% effective because people make all kinds of condom use errors. They use expired condoms. They put the condom on after sex has started or they take it off before they're finished having sex or it punctured when they were tearing 
you know, the wrapper. So there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with any form of contraceptive use, and they're not as effective as we think they are. And that's why it's important to use multiple methods. And that's also part of the appeal of the hormonal methods is that they tend to be way more effective and are a bit less subject to human error. So I think conversations about contraceptives, it's just important to have full knowledge of all of that so you can make informed decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's like we can talk about these side effects of hormonal birth control, you know, all day and all night. And and obviously I published a book discussing all of these things to look out for, but um, there's nothing that will ruin your life faster than an unintended pregnancy if you're really not ready. So the biggest predictor of poverty for women is like teenage pregnancy and that's no good. And so the idea isn't like, let's not ever use birth control and, you know, birth control pills and we should look for something natural and all of this. No, and instead, one of the big takeaways is like, educate yourself on the range of potential side effects. That way you make a decision where your eyes wide open and you know what to look out for, you know, because again, if you don't like what, how you're feeling or you know what to look out for, you know what to monitor. And if there's problems, then you can choose something else. You go and talk to your doctor and say, let's work on finding me something else. Right. The other thing to note is that, you know, as women I, and as a society, I think that we've got complacent with the birth control pill. And we just like treated the issue of birth control for women as being solved. Like, oh, well, that's taken care of. But it's not. As a society, I think that we really need to be pushing for R&D into new effective options that allow couples Right, the ability to um, prevent pregnancy in a way that doesn't have this huge, you know, potentially huge psychological burden on the on the female of the dyad, right, and not just investing in things that then shift the burden to men, because of course there's investment now in male hormonal birth control, which you know I'm obviously I'm in favor of of those investments, and I hope that they're able to develop one just so that way the the burden can be shared equally among uh, men and women. Um, but it really is just shifting the problem from one sex to the other. And I think that really what we need to say as a society is that this is a really important issue. It's an important issue to both men and women. And we need uh, investment in new technology and new, new methods because there's not enough out there. It is very imperfect. I mean, I think about, so I have, I have a teenage daughter and, you know, and I have this conversation with my girlfriends all the time, like, when she starts having sex, what do I recommend for her? It's like choosing between, you know, in a lot of ways, like, um, and I wrote an article called that, like how to choose the least worst birth control. And that's what I feel like it is, you know, it's like having to like, okay, what's the least, it wasn't even the least worst birth control for her. It is hard. It is absolutely hard. And there are so many factors, things to weigh in all of this. You've got the effectiveness factor, and then you have the, side effects factor and then you know what's going to work for my body individually and you know what works in our relationship and there's just so many things to take into account so i think there's a lot of value in exploring experimenting with some different options in order to figure out what it is that works for you and i'm glad you brought up the idea of a male birth control pill you know I've been reading for the last couple of decades, like you see these news headlines that say male birth control pill on the way, like five years or something like that. But it's always five to 10 years away. Like we've just 
never quite gotten there. And it seems like we're still a long ways away. And I think part of the reason for that is because, you know, it took us so long to understand what are the full effects and ramifications of hormonal birth control for women. And it's going to take a long time to uncover what all of those effects would be if you're tinkering with men's hormones. And we also have a very different regulatory environment. You know, when the female birth control pill was approved in the 1950s, it was a very different time in medicine. And, you know, trying to get a hormonal birth control pill out today would face a much higher bar, especially with the amount of side effects that it comes with. And then there's also the inherent complexity of, you know, trying to block the release of millions of sperm per ejaculation versus one egg per cycle, you know, so these are just very, very different things. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, do you think we'll ever have a hormonal birth control pill for men? Or do you think that men's birth control pill is going to have to go into a different direction? Well, I'll say this, you know, one of the reasons that it keeps being delayed is because men keep dropping out of the clinical trials because the side effects suck. So I don't know, like, I don't know that we're going to get there with the male birth control pill, because I mean, the fact is for women, you know, we take this pill, it causes a bunch of side effects. And then we think to ourselves, well, it's this, or the alternative is I, I get unexpectedly pregnant. And so women are willing to tolerate this like long list of terrible side effects because for them, the alternative is much worse. When men are taking hormonal birth control, they feel terrible. And then their alternative is, oh, my partner can just go on the pill, right? So it's like, I think most men, they don't have that same cost of like an unintended pregnancy hovering over their shoulders. And so they're just not willing, their, their threshold of tolerance for those side effects is much lower than what women's are. Because I mean, essentially the one that they're pilot testing, I mean, the mechanism is almost exactly the same as hormonal birth control is for women. It keeps levels of androgen so low that men don't produce viable sperm. And as you might imagine, as a man, that would make you feel terrible. I mean, it's like testosterone makes us feel pretty good. And the idea of having it suppressed, I mean, it's gonna make you feel awful. You're gonna feel unmotivated, sluggish. Your libido is gonna be in the toilet nobody wants that. And so like, do I think that we might finally get to a place where this thing gets approved where they're able to run enough studies to show that it's safe and effective? Yeah, I think eventually that it's going to. Do I think it's going to be hugely popular? No. Do I think it's going to solve the problem of birth control for men and women? No. Um, I really think that we need to sort of take our blinders off in terms of understanding the effects of hormones on the body. You know, when medicine originated as a, as a practice, you know, people still believed in that mind-body split, you know, that Cartesian, like you have the soul and that's like who you are and how you feel. And then your body is everything from the neck down. Just like science has come so far but medicine hasn't really, it's, it's like people have this blind spot about hormones, like that they're not like part of who you are, but they are. And so we need to start going down a different pathway because there's no way that people aren't going to feel a little bit messed up when they're taking synthetic hormones. It's very difficult. There was a, a couple of studies that were done very recently. So within this last year, and this is done in mice. And so um, we are a very long way from knowing whether or not this will ever work in humans or whether it causes a bunch of side effects. But this was uh, done on a compound that blocks the absorption of this like specific derivative of like vitamin A or something. And essentially what they find is that whatever this derivative of this vitamin is, that it seems to, at least from what researchers can tell, only be important 
in terms of sperm formation, spermatogenesis. And so they blocked absorption of this in mice and they were able to prevent sperm production without changing their hormone levels or anything else. And if this is true, right, and if this ends up replicating and if this turns out to be the case in humans, and if it turns out that this derivative of this vitamin that's being blocked from absorption actually doesn't do other important things in the body that affect how we think and feel, that might be money in the bank. And wouldn't that be a fabulous development in the world of contraception? Yeah, but there's a lot of ifs attached to that, as you mentioned. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's like there's so many. But I think that's such an important point that maybe the future of birth control, contraception, maybe it isn't with hormones and maybe it's getting creative and looking at some of these other ways. And, you know, something else I've also talked about on the show before is this temporary plug or blockage that you put into the vast deferens that prevents sperm from getting out of the body. And so there can be some of these other ways that might not come along with all of these other side effects of tinkering with our hormone levels. That's exactly what my thoughts are, is that there's got to be some creative way or even something that like a little little stent that you like put in um, in between the ovary and the fallopian tube that sort of just causes the egg to fall out of the fallopian tube, you know, almost like, like a pinball machine, you know, <laughs> where it's just like, that is what I think the future of contraception is going to be. It's going to be something really clever because I don't, I don't think that hormonal birth control is where it's at. Yeah. It's an area that is ripe for disruption. Now, I want to go back to something that you brought up, which is the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade, which previously guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion in the United States. And it's interesting that, you know, it's been in recent years that we've seen some of these younger women walking away from the pill and hormonal contraceptives, but then you have this really seismic shift that happens when it comes to reproductive rights. And in the weeks and months after the recent Supreme Court ruling, we've seen a lot of states that have been instituting new restrictions and bans on abortion. So I'm curious as to what you think that's going to mean for the future of the birth control pill. And do you think that we're going to see more women kind of move back to the pill or other hormonal contraceptives simply because they have the highest efficacy? Yes, no, absolutely. I feel like our hands are tied behind our back. And there's a foot on our throat as women, like the idea that a pregnancy in some states will be absolutely catastrophic for you as a woman. What other choices do we have? So yeah, I think that we're going to see an increased uptake in the use of more fail-safe forms of contraception. And I think that you know, for women who do experience these awful um, psychological side effects, and again, not every woman does, but some women are incredibly sensitive to those hormones and they do not feel good. What an absolutely awful situation that we've put these women in. And so, yes, I think that that's what we're going to see happen. I'm hoping also that we're going to get public pressure put on the R&D in uh, drug companies to work on developing other forms of birth control that are just as effective that have fewer psychological and behavioral side effects. Yeah. And, you know, something I've seen in some of my recent research in the post-Roe world that we find ourselves in is that you have a lot of young women, Gen Z and millennial, who are increasingly afraid of sex. Like they're afraid to have it because there is that potential risk of unintended pregnancy and what that could mean. And so I think you're right that there probably will be a shift and maybe going back to some of those more highly effective reversible contraceptives. 
Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Sarah. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book, Your Brain on Birth Control? Yeah, so you can find me um, on Instagram and Twitter and all other social networks. And my handle is at Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And that's Sarah with an H. So Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And uh, you can also find me online at sarahehill.com. You can find uh, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control anywhere that books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, your local bookstore. Support local bookstores. Thank you again for your time, Sarah. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>